Hello and welcome to this very special bonus episode of Double Reel, the monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. Every now and then we try and give you a bit of bonus content. We do hope to do more in the vein of specials on individual directors and such like when our busy schedules permit. But for now we'd like to present for your enjoyment The Year of the Carpenter, an anthology of the features we did throughout 2021 on the main podcast on the films of the great John Carpenter. This was a New Year's resolution of mine to take 12 of my favourite films by the Master of Suspense and watch one a month in ascending order of their rating on IMDb. It was an opportunity for me to revisit some classic films that I grew up with, but also to discuss the films, stories and influences of a true legend of action, horror and sci-fi, and share them with you, our lovely audience. There's no new content on this podcast, so if you heard all these features on the pod this year already and don't need to hear them again, you may want to give this a miss. But if you're a fan of John Carpenter, or this feature has whetted your appetite to get into his films, I think you'll enjoy this dedicated episode to his best work and discussions of his influences, films that were inspired by him, and films that share key ideas or motifs. The list of films in the year of The Carpenter uh, are as follows. Vampires, Dark Star, Prince of Darkness, The Fog, Starman, In the Mouth of Madness, Escape from New York, They Live, Big Trouble in Little China, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, and The Thing. Now these are my favourite 12 John Carpenter films. There are others to watch if you'd like. I'm a big fan of his and think there's plenty of other stuff outside this list which is worth checking out. His Stephen King adaptation, Christine, has some great moments, and his Snake Plissken sequel, Escape from L.A., has its fans as well. He also wrote the scripts for some other interesting films, as well as some excellent TV work, which I didn't discuss as this is a film podcast. These include the TV movie Someone's Watching Me and several entries in the horror anthology series Masters of Horror. For more information on all the films I've discussed and everything else John Carpenter was involved in making, I'll remind you to check out the excellent podcast Masters of Carpentry, which looks at all of his work in great detail and is a terrific listen. That's enough preamble, so please sit back, relax, and let me take you through 2021, the year of the carpenter. My other news resolution is to make 2021 the year of the carpenter. Uh, and what that's going to be is I've picked my 12 favorite John Carpenter films. And I'm going to watch one a month. Right. Um, what just because that's, uh, well, this is the other thing I want to say, well, how shall I do this? Shall I do this in ascending or descending order of, of how much I like them or in chronological order or whatever like this? And eventually I said, I'm going to start at the bottom with IMDb's lowest rated film uh, of, of John Carpenter's from my list. Often be and which is fine because even things that aren't rated that high on there can often be a bit underrated. I'm just going all the way to the top. So first, the first one is Vampires, and the last one is uh, is the Thing. Okay, because obviously the Thing is his highest rated film. So for January, I watched John Carpenter's Vampires, and I I basically spent my Christmas money on that. Um, well, not all of it, just a little bit, and um, to get that on Blu-ray because I realized I didn't have it on Blu-ray. So I watched John Carpenter's uh, Vampires this month, which um, I, don't, I don't. Have you seen that the James Woods film? No, I haven't. I've not watched a lot of John Carpenter, actually. It's kind of like John Carpenter. The interesting thing with John Carpenter, that this film is a bit like Near Dark when we talk about Catherine Bigelow and, and one, which one, one of my favorite, one of the early films. And it's similar because Catherine Bigelow is trying to make a Western with vampires. And, and John Carpenter is always trying to make a Western, even though he's known for horror. He's actually, usually he's, he's, he's influenced by Westerns. And this is kind of like a Western vampire movie because it's all out in New Mexico and it's kind of good guys versus bad guys. Um, it's really underrated. It's only rated 6.2 on IMDb, which is lower than Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Um, it's nowhere near my favorite John Carpenter film, but I did really enjoy it. It's kind of like a, 
it's kind of like a fun, gory B movie where lots of vampires and lots of vampire um, hunters end up, you know, disemboweled or killed in gruesome ways, with a great John Carpenter like music score in it. A lot of fun, not not essential John Carpenter, but good fun. And because it was a James Woods film, and uh, you know, despite him being a bit of a Trumploid asshole on Twitter, I'm a big fan of his acting. Um, so I decided to make this month's impromptu top ten um, the uh, my favorite James Woods films. So in no particular order, my impromptu top 10 favorite James Woods films are, well, there is no particular order apart from the first one, Once Upon a Time in America, because that is my favorite film of his and my favorite film of all time. But the rest of the top 10 is Videodrome. Don't know if you've seen that, the Cronenberg film. Probably not. <laughs> you know, a lot of these Sal- films are probably going to be like, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Salvador is about um, troubles in El Salvador in the 80s. Hercules, where he did the voice of Hades. Oh, okay, I like yeah, that. No, I've seen that. <laughs> Everyone's seen that. The Hard Way, where he plays a cop who um, who has to babysit um, a film star played by Michael J. Fox, who's, who's uh, being a method actor learning to be a cop. Um, the Onion Field, an old cop movie, Against All Odds, uh, Cop, True Believer, and Nixon. So there are my 10 favorite James Woods films for the impromptu top 10. Okay. He is very good in Hercules, I would say. I know he's been in some great films, but... Yeah, he's very good in Hercules. That's why he's on my list. Perfect. Yeah, the, the last thing that I did was my other New Year's resolution was to make 2021 the year of the Carpenter. And as I said, each each month I was going to watch a nominated uh, film from my favorite John Carpenter films. And, and this month was Dark Star, um, which is, you know, one of his lowest rated films. It's 6.3 on IMDb. Um, and it's it, this was actually John Carpenter's student film. He did it while he was still at university and it was quite good. So they borrowed $60,000 and expanded it. So it was feature length sneaked it out of the, out of the university who supposedly owned the rights and released it on a festival and, and, and on a few cinemas. So it's kind of like where John Carpenter's career began. And on the one hand, it looks exactly like a student film and it's so cheap. And for them to try and do it, it's a science fiction movie set in deep space and the, 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 with the spaceship going faster than light. And to do that on that kind of budget, frankly, you've got to be insane. I mean, I don't know how they thought they'd get away with it, but it's it's quite fun. It's like a hippie parody of 2001 on like a one two hundredth of the budget. Um, it was co-written by Dan O'Bannon, who went on to do things like Alien and Total Recall. So it's got it's got a good pedigree. It's more of a piece of cinema history than a proper film, really, because you know you watch it, and while it's quite trippy and quite fun, you just think, God, that, that looks like cardboard. It's so cheap. Um, but there's a whole sequence where um, they've got an alien on board that they've kind of kept as a pet, but it, it gets out and starts to make a nuisance of itself, and they've got to kind of go around all these corridors trying to find where the alien's hiding. And it's absolutely hilarious. It's basically Alien, like the scary version of Alien, but done for comedy. Right. Uh, which, which is quite interesting because the guy who wrote that for this movie went and wrote Alien. Dan O'Bannon wrote Alien, and and it's basically the same storyline. He did it one once as a comedy, once as a horror. Um, the other fun aspect of this, because we're both fans of this, is that it, this film is basically the entire um, uh, uh, inspiration for Red Dwarf. Oh, really? Incredible, is it? Yeah, basically, the, Doug Naylor, who created Red Dwarf, he co-wrote it with another guy, um, Rob Grant, but he created this um, radio show called uh, Dave Holland Space Cadet, which he later expanded into Red Dwarf, and the whole thing is is inspired by Dark Star, which is why their spaceship is called Red Dwarf, which is a kind of star, and the star bug looks a bit like one of their ships, and the idea of machines that are comically disobedient, um, everything's going, you know, they're, they're aging slowly because of the effects of space travel. There's a malfunction food dispensing machine. Honestly, this is this is where he got a lot of his ideas, so it's quite fun watching it for that reason. 
And a, a super nerdy fact is that one of the characters in Danny Boar's film Sunshine, which she did for the podcast, is named after a character in Dark Star. So it's, I wouldn't say this is the best thing to watch yourself, but it was quite fun to see this kind of early prototype sci-fi movie, which you know is the inspiration for other films. Yeah, it's like a kind of a base yeah. for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So next month I'll be doing Prince of Darkness and we're starting to get into the area where um, uh, John Carpenter really hit his stride. Prince of Darkness is a horror movie he did in the 80s. But in honour of um, uh, Dark Star, um, I'm going to do the impromptu top 10 that I always do for our roundup, okay. um, which is, aside from Dark Star, the top 10 most successful low-budget sci-fi films. So to get on this list, you just have to be in one of those films that was done for a very low budget, considering the um, you know the success and achievement of the film. And that top 10 goes like this. Uh, Moon, the Sam Rockwell film, oh, uh, yeah. Mad Max, the original one, uh, Cube, uh, Pi, um, Primer, uh, which is on our list of things to get around to watching. But, uh, you know, I'm not calling it a top 10 best film. I'm calling it most successful, so I'm still allowed to mention it. Uh, Quatermass in the Pit, uh, Scanners, Stalker, Death Race 2000, and Monsters. So if you're a fan of low-budget sci-fi, which uh, transcends its limitations, then that, that's your list of films to watch. Okay, well, I'll, I'll take a, a note of that. <laughs> this month, it was uh, Prince of Darkness. Now, this is one of the most underrated John Carpenter films. Its IMDb rating is 6.7, which the IMD ratings are a bit skewed. I mean, anything between 6 and 7, it can be a good film that people don't appreciate, or it can be a fucking piece of shit. Well, this is a good film that is underappreciated. Um, it's one of the lowest rated films from Carpenter's peak period, the eighties, but I actually think it's one of its best. It's seen now as the middle part of his apocalypse trilogy that started with the thing and finished within the mouth of madness. Um, it's inspired by John Carpenter's love of Nigel Neal, who was a pioneer of British TV, especially with his Quatermass series. Uh, in fact, the, uh, the script for Prince of Darkness was written under the pen name of Martin Quatermass in tribute. Um, Nigel Neal had actually worked with John Carpenter before on a, on a sequel to Halloween, uh, but then asked for his name to be taken off the film when he saw how violent the finished product was, which is uh, odd that you know, he'd uh, uh, be surprised that a Halloween sequel would be violent. Um, so th- this came in the sort of the latter part of the 80s when John Carpenter was, was sick of being messed around by the studio, so he went independent, got a low budget but had complete control. Uh, and this film is kind of um, – it's basically about scientific theories on quantum physics colliding with religious prophecies about the devil returning to take over the world. So it's like a really interesting, quite ambitious take on the whole, you know, the devil's going to get us kind of storyline. Um, because of the low budget, the, the cast's not very well known, really apart from Donald Pleasance, who was in Halloween Escape from New York. And basically the storyline is an ancient artifact is found in a disused church, which contains something sort of terrifying and powerful. Uh, a priest played by Donald Pleasance has uncovered information from a secret group called the uh, the Brotherhood of Sleep, which says the devil's going to take over the world and you've got to fight them. The scientists come in because they want to study the artifact and see what's really going on. And they hole up in the old church where this is. They get trapped in there. Uh, and whenever anyone falls asleep, they all have the same dream, which seems to be a message from the future about you know terrible things happening. Um, so it's proper... Um, you know, quite ambitious for its low budget, but they do quite a good job of it. Um, uh, it has a, a strange cameo from Alice Cooper as a demonically possessed street person who kills someone quite brutally with a bicycle. That's uh, quite a notable uh, highlight of the film. Um, it's got all sorts of things which really stick in your mind after you've seen it. There's this constant refrain, the sleeper awakens. Um, there's stuff, people communicating through dreams. There's some stuff with mirrors which will creep you out the next time you're anywhere near a mirror. Um 
And basically what it does, it builds a really creepy atmosphere with all, all the usual kind of John Carpenter touches and the music. And then all hell breaks loose, literally. Um, I mean, I love it because it's got some really ambitious ideas. And despite its low budget, most of those ideas pay off. Um, like John Carpenter at his best, he, you know, he manages to do a lot with it with a little. Um, and it has this really great inconclusive final shot where, you know, where, where's it going to go from here? Um, totally thoroughly recommended if you like a bit of, uh, uh, you know, unusual kind of, you know, inventive horror. And uh, next month we're getting into some of the more famous names. Next month we're doing John Carpenter's The Fog, which more people I think will have heard of. But inspired by Alice Cooper's appearance in the film, I've decided to throw in the impromptu top 10 that we always do. And this impromptu top 10 is random film appearances by rock stars. Um, now, this is really kind of cameos or guest appearances. Um, don't uh, uh, don't include sort of starring roles for Mick Jagger or Bowie, who really kind of you know, tried a proper acting career. Uh, and this top 10 includes uh, Guns N' Roses uh, in the Deadpool, uh, a Dirty Harry film, and shout out to Jim Carrey for his Axl Rose impression in a serious role in the same film. Uh, Gene Simmons from Kiss in Wanted Dead or Alive. Alanis Morissette as God in Dogma, Billy Idol in The Wedding Singer, Bruce Springsteen in High Fidelity, Anthony Kiedis from The Red Hot Chili Peppers in Point Break, Flea from The Red Hot Chili Peppers in The Big Lebowski, Gwen Stefani in The Aviator, Henry Rollins in Heat, and Mick Fleetwood in The Running Man. Is Gwen Stefani a rock star? uh, Well, if you say, you know, she was in a band that had, had a guitarist, I would just about call her a rock star. I feel like you're reaching... (laughs) <laughs> I, I needed to get it to 10. Uh, and this month it was The Fog, which is one of his more famous names. Um, this came out in 1980. It was his follow-up to the hugely successful Halloween. Um, and the thing is, it's t- it's actually quite different from Halloween. He, he intended it as a ghost story, and the, the start of the, of the film is actually kids around a campfire being told a ghost story that relates to the town that they live in. And it's trying to build that atmosphere. There's the, There's, you know, ghosts live here because of the the dodgy history of the town, some of the things they did, you know, a hundred years ago before, you know, when, when they were, you know, still setting up as a town and then the, the ghosts of the, of, of the, of the occupants of the ship that they, that they killed come back to haunt the people in the, uh, in the town. Um, so it's all, it's much more about being atmospheric. There isn't like a, there's no gore, although there's like, you know, some quite brutal killings, but there's almost like no blood or anything, but it, it really works as kind of a, an atmospheric, creepy, like ghost story. The background to it was John Carpenter was uh, in in the seventies was promoting one of his films in in England and took the opportunity to go on a trip to Stonehenge. And he was there as it was getting dark towards the end of the night, and there's this like fog or mist like rolled in over Stonehenge, and it and it just looked creepy as anything. And his little kind of screenwriter's mind went, "Oh, that there's an idea. I'm going to write a story around that." Um, had to reshoot it to make it work because I think it was a little bit tepid when he, he reshot it. And so we're going to need to actually put a bit more danger into it. Um, but I mean, I really enjoyed it. It's got lots of actors in it who appear in other John Carpenter films. So there's lots of enjoyment. Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. Um, uh, a number of, of, of actors who kind of uh, turn up in, you know, the, the one of the main guys from Assault in Precinct 13 is in it. And um, it also makes, makes excellent use of Adrienne Barbeau's character. She's the radio DJ who's got basically the town's local radio station in the old lighthouse which is above the fog and really secluded. So she's on her own and she's trapped there and she's trying to fight off the, you know, the, the, the monsters from the fog, but also warn everybody else. So she has some great monologues trying to warn people about where the fog's going and where they've got to get to. And she really builds the atmosphere. So she's really good. And, um, that, uh, that inspired me to do an impromptu top 10 in honor of the, um, the use of a DJ. This is the best use of a radio DJ in films. 
Um, and the list goes like this. Play Misty for me, the Clint Eastwood classic. The Warriors, which has a great DJ commentating on the uh, on the action. Good Morning Vietnam, obviously. Yes, good, good. Sorry, I was waiting for that one. No, <laughs> pump, pump Up the Volume with Christian Slater. That was good. Uh, the Fisher King, people may not remember so much that uh, Jeff Bridges' character was a DJ, and that was very important. Uh, Talk to Me with Don Cheadle, Do the Right Thing. Uh, Reservoir Dogs, obviously, that's a classic uh, linking to uh, to all the story. American Graffiti has a, a great uh, rock and roll DJ. And uh, Vanishing Point. Uh, and there's uh, there's an interesting throwing together of 10 very different films that are all linked by, uh, by and one element. Shout out, honourable mention to Alan Partridge. Alpha yes, Papa. of course, Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa. Let's make that, that number 11 in the impromptu num- uh, t- top 11. Or number 0.5, depending number, on your... Number 0.5, excellent. So the next month, the Year of the Carpenter entry will be Starman. That's an excellent film. I recommend anyone watch it. But uh, other than that, that's uh, that's the news, and that's what we watched this month. This month, I'm doing Starman from 1984. And um, just to say, before we get into it, obviously, like any feature on this magazine-style podcast, each of our features is quite short, doesn't give you all the detail. And the idea is that it's going to give you um, uh, an insight into the film, a taste of it, and maybe inspire you to to watch the film yourself. And if you're as nerdy as me, hopefully inspires you to maybe look up further information about the film. If you want to look up further information on any John Carpenter film we've discussed on our podcast, I recommend uh, the Masters of Carpentry podcast. That's Masters of Carpentry, uh, because each uh, each episode goes into great detail on each of these films. You'll find out all sorts of great stuff. It really gets you um, wanting to watch the next film on the list. Um, all, all the research on the podcast is done by one of the co-presenters, Noel Thingvall. Um, I'm going to link to his his Twitter and link to his, uh, his blog spot so you can see the episodes. If you're a John Carpenter fan, it's an absolute goldmine. Apart from that shout-out, Starman from 1984 – um, this was John Carpenter working his way back into the studio system after he got a bit of a kicking over the thing and being fired from Firestarter, which is still insane that he, that, that was bad for his career because it's his best film and one of the greatest horror movies of all time. Um, but anyway, he he, uh, he did a Chris, he did another Stephen King adaptation, Christine, uh, built his way back up. You know that film was a hit, and he picked up Starman. Um, it was a script that had been going around for a bit, and he decided to turn it into a John Carpenter style film. It's like a science fiction film, ostensibly. It's about a group of highly advanced aliens who are flying around the Earth because in the 70s we sent out the Voyager space probe, which said, here's us, here's what we're all about, come and visit. The first aliens that come and visit, everyone panics and shoots them down, right? It's just kind of about that, you know, Cold War paranoia. Um, So it means that one alien has kind of been shot down and has got to make his way across America to the the rendezvous point. Um, The only way he can do that, because they're kind of not particularly physical beings, is to pick up the DNA of a dead guy uh, and, and basically turn himself into a, a version of that guy, which happens to be Jeff Bridges. Um, the problem is he does that in the house of his wife, who's, who just recently lost him in a car accident, so it blows her mind that suddenly her husband's standing there again, uh, but unable to talk properly because he's an alien and he's still working out how things are and, and getting into his body. And he makes her take him across country. So in the beginning, she's kind of been kidnapped. Uh, as they go along, she kind of sees that he's really you know, essentially very decent, very sweet in the way that he's still trying to learn the ways of of, uh, of the world and, and starts to be on his side. But they're being pursued by the government, which is a scientist who wants to study him, but also the army who wants to blow him out of the water, as it were. So you have a, a chase across the country, a road movie, and some quite touching and funny moments. Carol Allen, Allen is really sweet as 
the the person who's kind of lost her her you know she's really, she's really tough but also you really identify because she's putting really vulnerable because she's lost her husband and now he's suddenly back in in another form um but it's it's a really entertaining film it's not typical john carpenter but it's really fun uh it's almost like a, a road movie and a romantic comedy. It's really moving at times. It's also very exciting. There's some great ending. The music's terrific, as you'd expect in a John Carpenter film, although someone else did the score. Um, I definitely recommend watching this if you like that sort of, um, you know, there's a science fiction element to it, but also it's basically a fun road movie and a, such a good performance by Jeff Bridges that he was nominated for an Oscar. So I think that's a fair, uh, uh, a fair recommendation. Now, on the uh, on the strength of the fact that this is more of a road movie than a sci-fi movie, it inspired me to do an impromptu top 10 for this month, which is the top 10 uh, road movies. This is films that are predominantly just uh, the story is about getting, you know, from one place to another, you know, traveling. I uh, don't mean action or heist films or car chase films like Mad Max, Baby Driver and the like. This is films where really it's about characters, you know, in some sort of buddy situation going across the country. So here's my top 10. It happened one night. Clockwise, Thelma and Louise, True Romance, Badlands, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, Midnight Run, Harry and Tonto, Paris, Texas and Itumama Tambien. As always, you take a, a very high-level genre like that and then stick 10 films in it, you get 10 very different films, so it's quite a diverse list for you, uh, but hopefully that will inspire you to maybe watch something off that list as well as watching Starman. Next month, our Year of the Carpenter feature will be In the Mouth of Madness, which uh, I'm really looking forward to because that's a terrific film and not, not very well known. This month, I'm doing In the Mouth of Madness. I'm doing this in order of, uh, in ascending order of IMDb rating of, of the films on, uh, you know, the, the fan response to them. Um, and this is about mid-table, you know, which is why it's been uh, been featured like halfway through the year. Um, it's outside of Carpenter's kind of peak in the 70s and 80s. It came out in 1994. I think it's the last really good film he made. I've got a soft spot for it because it's one of those rare occasions I actually got to see one of his films in the cinema. Uh, and I was pleased to see it rated as high as it was because it kind of came and went a bit on release, but it's got a cult following like a lot of his films do. Uh, a lot of people who were like fans of you know nineties horror and stuff in the nine you know have really kind of you know enjoyed it at the time and it's still kept alive. Um, so the summary of the film it's kind of it's kind of strange. The whole thing is inspired by H.P. Lovecraft without actually adapting one of his stories, but it draws from that kind of well of ideas of of horrors and monsters you know just on the other side of our reality. Uh, and it's got that literary world. It's also very influenced by Stephen King, which will become clear when the story's sort of summarised. Uh, Sam Neill plays an insurance investigator who's been hired by the publishers of a hugely popular novelist called uh, Sutter Kane. He writes these horror novels, which look very Stephen Kingy on on the covers. Uh, and, and this novelist has disappeared just as his new book manuscript is meant to be delivered. The in- investigator's got to go and find Kane, uh, accompanied by Kane's editor, um, to you know get the. Uh, to, to get the manuscript so it can be published. And the investigator was wondering if this whole thing is a scam. So he's gone in very skeptical. In the background to this, society seems to be coming apart at the seams. There's these people becoming psychotic, just general breakdown in society. So, and it's, there's the suggestion that Sutter Kane's books might be causing this, you know, there's some sort of un- unraveling being caused by his uh, by his books. And this is Carpenter satirizing the uh, the moral panic around horror books and films that you, you know, periodically have, but also creating this really seductive world which horror fans would love, you know, the idea of the horror stories are coming to life, you know? So yeah. they go searching for Sutter Kane, and which is driving through New England in the northeast of America. And what happens is they sort of go through some sort of breach in reality and end up in the fictional town 
where all of uh, Sutter Kane's books are set, which is another nod to Stephen King, but it's also how H.P. Lovecraft did things. And now all the scenes in Monsters from his stories have come to life, and the investigator can't believe what's going on. Is this like some, you know, have they got special effects? Are they trying to do this for my benefit to publicize the new book? But it soon becomes clear that, no, this is really happening. There is some terrifying horror lurking just on the other side of reality and is about to break into our world. So I really like this film. It's kind of weird. It creates a really atmospheric horror, you know, uh, world for you to, to enjoy. Lots of fantastic ideas in this story. It's really great for someone in my generation who a lot of read a Stephen King horror books. Uh, and, you know, it's in, in my opinion, it's the best film that's you know ever, ever been made that's inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. I don't think it's for everyone because I think it's um, – I think if you're a fan of John Carpenter, you'll love this film, but I wouldn't I wouldn't make people watch this first if I wanted to introduce John Carpenter to them, if you know what I mean. Um, and if you like Stephen King books and you like, you know, the H.P. Lovecraft horror, it'll definitely give you something to enjoy. Um, there's a lot of things to like about the film. Um, John Carpenter was listening to a lot of Metallica um, at the time, which has influenced his score for the film, which is a lot of fun to listen to. Um, it's been described retrospectively as the final part of John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, which started with The Thing and continued with Prince of Darkness. So for a Carpenter fan, this is like kind of, you know, completing the world he created in his films. Um, so I definitely recommend it, but with that kind of element that don't make this the first John Carpenter film you watch, but you once you get, you know, the, the John Carpenter vibe, uh, this is a really worthy entry in his list of films. And my, my other New Year's resolution uh, was to make 2021 the year of The Carpenter, in which I watch one of John Carpenter's best films each month in ascending order of their IMDb rating. Uh, we're hitting the second half of the year now, so we're getting some of the big names in John uh, Carpenter's filmography. And for July, it's one of his most famous films, Escape from New York. Now, I'm surprised it's not rated higher, actually, because coming out in July or being discussed in July means that it's only John Carpenter's sixth highest rated film on IMDb. Personally, I would have rated it more like top three or four. Um, uh, but there it is. I don't think it's quite as highly rated as some of his uh, things like Halloween and so on, which we will get to. Um, it's uh, In fact, it only beats in the mouth of madness on a bit of a tie break because uh, in Escape from New York has more votes. Um, but I, I, I love it. It's one of my favorite films, partly, I think, because it was one of the first films of John Carpenter I ever saw. Um, but it's a classic John Carpenter film from his peak period, 1981. He's riding high after Halloween had been a big hit in 78. Um, he made The Fog straight after that, which was also a hit. Um, and then Escape from New York was next. Now, it almost didn't get made at all because Carpenter had a two-picture deal with an independent studio. And The Fog was the first film in that, which did quite well. So the studio was keen to make the second film. And Carpenter was actually working on a film called The Philadelphia Experiment, which he was writing but couldn't quite get the ending right. And the studio said, we can't wait, strike while the iron's hot, you're, bit, you're really successful at the moment, give us something now. So John Carpenter literally reached into his trunk of scripts he'd written before and, and hadn't produced yet and dusted off Escape from New York, and, and the rest is history. Um, so this is the first John Carpenter film I ever watched, and, and I rented it on video. And the experience, which I talked about on, on a previous podcast of renting something from a video shop as a kid in the 80s, meant you walked into the, the, the shop and there were loads of... Uh, video cases sort of on the wall which displayed what the film was all about and they all had these kind of lurid images pro promising all sorts of thrills and suspense uh, and this is a classic version of that because the, the 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 cover which is also the poster of Escape from New York you can look at it online it's ruined New York landmarks and the Statue of Liberty's head lying on the streets of Manhattan with Kurt Russell uh, with an eye patch, two support characters with him being pursued by an armed mob that was everything I needed to know about this film I wanted to watch it and <laughs> 
there are, lo- there are a lot of films like that which you know w- weren't very you know back back then there are a lot of films which would have a very lively picture on the case promising all sorts of you know illicit thrills for a young person like me probably was too young to watch the film um they didn't always deliver i want the cover promised you but john carpenter always did john carpenter's films always do what it says on the tin and um the opening of the film is classic john carpenter tells you all you need to know about the dystopian future awaiting us um in the next kind of 15 20 years from the time this film is being released there's going to be a breakdown of law and order which gets so severe that they decide to wall up the island of manhattan mine the bridges and turn it into a giant maximum security prison where they just put in hundreds of thousands of of prisoners. Uh, Once you go in, you don't come out. America has pretty much been turned into like a a totalitarian dictatorship. A militarized police force guards the wall. Uh, In the opening minute of the film, you see a few prisoners uh, trying to escape across the river out of the prison on a raft at night. A police helicopter flies over, catches them in the searchlight, blows them out of the water. That's what we're faced with. War hero turned criminal Snake Plissken is being processed as a new prisoner. He's about to be dumped into Manhattan, having been caught um, trying to rob the Federal Reserve. He's kind of turned against America because he's so disillusioned about his experiences in in what is essentially a new global world war. Um, overhead, a jet is being hijacked and flown into the prison's airspace. The jet turns out to be Air Force One, and a radical resistance group to America's totalitarian government are making a statement to the world. They crash the plane into a building on Manhattan Island, which is scarily prophetic in itself. It kills everyone on board, but the president has ejected at the last minute in a skate pod, lands in the prison island, and is kidnapped by a gang of inmates. The president, however, was on his way to a peace conference to try and stop the world war, which threatens to engulf civilization, and needs to be saved within 24 hours or it's all over. So Snake Plissken, whose life no longer means anything anyway because he's a convict, is recruited to go into New York Island and save the president and return for a full pardon. Now, this is just the first 10 minutes of the film. It just says, wow, there you go, this whole new world. I was hooked from the beginning. It's, and, and I think it still stands up, although it is very much of its time and its style and, and, uh, and, and approach. It's classic sci-fi and a limited budget. It's bigger than John Carpenter's previous budgets, but still stretching the boundaries. It's, full, it's packed full of ideas. Um, and it, the, the ideas hint at this wider world with just a few scenes or a qu- quick lines of dialogue. So you get the feeling that this whole world of, of, of this horrible future has been has been realized, but you only, you only see glimpses of it because they didn't have the budget to do it all. But they refer to a battle over Leningrad, which suggests that the Cold War has turned into a full-on global war threatening the world. It gives you a hint of the totalitarian government running America now, social breakdown, armed radicals hijacking Air Force One. It really creates this kind of bleak future world. And then Kurt Russell is the anti-hero snake. This is his breakout role. He's embittered by his experiences in war. He walks around with an eye patch, looking, you know, pissed off, you know, with a, with a toothpick between his teeth. You know, shades of Clint Eastwood in his performance. Uh, Lee Van Cleef plays the ruthless police chief who sends him in. There's some great characters in the prison population inside the island, Ernest Borgnine, Isaac Hayes, who played Shaft. Sorry, he played the theme tune to Shaft, sorry. Adrian Barbeau and Harry Dean Stanton. And Donald Pleasance from the Halloween films plays the president in need, of ras- uh, in need of rescue. Now, none of this looks all that extraordinary today because this has been a hugely influential film and been copied so many times. But it really pushed the, the boundaries of action sci-fi at the time when it came out. In fact, people were taken back by the kind of bleak nihilisms. John Carpenter's films had often had a certain element of humor to them, and so does this. But this was really, this was quite bleak. It reflected a lot of the fears and concerns of the time about rising crime, cities falling apart, and was definitely written by, you know, an American who was, you know, very 
disillusioned with his government. You know, in the seventies with Watergate and everything else, people were sick of their government, and 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 a lot of the films got made kind of reflected that. And this is definitely now there. It's been superseded and sort of overtaken by modern action films now, especially sound and editing. But it's still a great suspense film. Uh, and in fact, a lot of its cues and kind of creative choices are more reminiscent of, of horror films, which is unsurprising given it's John Carpenter. But there's a scene early on when night has fallen and these demented people start rising up from the sewers under the prison, coming up through the manholes, bursting in and killing anyone left out of the street at night. And it's, wow, we, this is a dark place, right? It also features one of the most famous John Carpenter scores. Um, after this, his music becomes more integrated into the actual film. But back then, his music was almost like a character in the film, like Halloween and Assault on Precinct 13, where the music really stands out. Um, so it's a lovely, really gritty, dark film with some hit, quite sudden and violent action. Uh, and, you know, it's got all of John Carpenter's classic style that you love. This is, I mean, this is classic John Carpenter. This is the sort of film you could say, if you're trying to get someone else into John Carpenter, this is one of the first films you might want to get them to watch, either this or Halloween or Assault on Precinct 13. It's one of the first ones to kind of give people. And it's got a really cool kind of bleak, open-ended sort of ending to the film. And it's the first time I'd ever seen that, which I loved. Um, in John Carpenter's kind of filmography, this is you know one of his you know highest points. The film was a hit. He went on from here to do to do a big budget film with Universal, which was the thing. Um, Kurt Russell became a star and did several more films with John Carpenter. This film's been a huge influence on modern action sci-fi, as has the music. Um, Kurt Russell's character Snake Plissken has inspired so many other anti-hero characters since then, uh, including the main character in Metal Gear Solid, the video game. It inspired a sequel 15 years later, which isn't very good and hasn't made it into the top 12 um, for this year. Um, but it's a really good film, which I, I thoroughly recommend. It's one of those films, you, it's one of the, like I say, it's one of the breakout John Carpenter films. This is one of the classic ones you would say, oh, you haven't heard of John Carpenter? Watch this. It's also got an iconic future vision of New York, which is really striking. And uh, it's inspired the return of my impromptu top 10s, which we didn't do last month. This month, uh, inspired by Escape from New York, we're doing uh, the top 10 other futuristic depictions of New York City, other than this one. Not all of them are the main plot of the film, and not all of them are great films, but they do contain visually striking or impressive visions of what New York might be like in the future. So in no particular order, that impromptu top 10 includes Planet of the Apes, spoiler alert, AI, Artificial Intelligence, uh, Soylent Green, Dread, Oblivion, Heavy Metal, the Fifth Element, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, I Am Legend, and Metropolis. And as I say, some of those films are Stone Cold classics. Some of them are, are less kind of uh, well-appreciated or well-known, but they all include a really interesting vision of, of future New York, which is worth checking out. So that's the, the Year of the Carpenter entry for July. Next month, we're doing They Live, another John Carpenter from his classic period. Um, and I'm looking forward to that, but that's all for this month. So my final uh, resolution entry uh, for the month is to make 2021 the year of the carpenter. And uh, the idea is that I take my favorite 12 John Carpenter films and watch them in ascending order of uh, their rating on IMDb. So the the least well-liked at the beginning of the year, uh, climaxing with the you know, favorite and hopefully best John Carpenter film at the end of the year. Now in August, we're, you know, we're comfortably in the top half. We're among his better films, his best regarded films. Um, so this month's entry is They Live. Uh, this is from 1998, and this is widely regarded as being the last film that John Carpenter made during his kind of classic phase. From Assault and Precinct 13 in 1976 through to this in 88, he had this sort of 
unbroken period where maybe not all of his films during that period were big hits, but uh, they were all good. They all showed what John Carpenter can do. And um, this followed on from Prince of Darkness when he stepped away from big studios and was doing something a bit more independent. So this is a kind of slightly low-budget sci-fi action thriller. It's also a political commentary on the Reagan years in America in the 80s. Um, and you know how it created an underclass who were being run into the ground by the wealthy elite. And his way of telling that story is the idea that all these people who are living hand-to-mouth, taking jobs for cash and basically living in a shelter in L.A. while the yuppies get richer and richer, find out, or some of them find out, that all these yuppies that are kind of living on top of them are actually aliens who've taken over the world and are controlling everyone with kind of mind control. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the main character is... Uh, he's a big sort of quite strong muscly kind of bloke who just works on a building site and he he notices at the shelter that he's working that there's a church over the road where something weird is going on and then it gets attacked by the police sort of you know a fascist you know riot police kind of knocking the place down which is an odd thing to do to a church and he finds in there a box of sunglasses and he puts one of them on and suddenly sees that when you wear these glasses you can see a the advertising billboards on the you know on the side of the road contain subliminal messages to obey, consume, don't question authority. And he also finds when he looks at certain people that they don't look human, that they're actually horrible-looking kind of aliens who've got corpse-like faces. Uh, and he realizes what's happened is this race of aliens have come down, live among us without anyone realizing, and somehow are transmitting some kind of frequency that tricks people into thinking everything's normal and should just go along with their lives. Uh, and and on the strength of that, he sort of joins the the underground resistance to fight back against these people. And as well as being kind of a slightly paranoid science fiction story and a bit of a political commentary, it's also a kick-ass action film where it just completely kicks off. Rowdy Roddy Piper was a WWE wrestler who turned to acting. Um, but fortunately, he's not at the Hulk Hogan kind of shitty end of things. He's very much at the Dave Bautista end of things, someone who actually could act yeah. um, and really did a good job of it. Um like a lot of John Carpenter films, it's got a bit of a Western vibe, even though it's set in present-day Los Angeles. The main character doesn't have a name in the stories, like the man with no name. He walks into town at the beginning. He's got no roots. Um, and uh, he uh, finds what's going on and then just starts cleaning up the town. And he starts shooting the aliens. He's got some fantastic you know, lines like, I am here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. It's a lot of fun without losing sort of a bit of tension and also very – angry commentary about kind of you know what the republicans were doing to america at the time um it's a lot of fun there's probably a lot of like imagery from it that other people have, have used the idea that, that in the sunglasses everything looks black and white and there's a bit where he puts his sunglasses on black and white turns around and realizes everyone in the shop is an alien and they all look at him so it's got that vibe of the um those old classic uh, sci-fi movies like invasions of the body snatchers or something where you turn around and you're surrounded by the aliens and they're all pointing at you and you've got to get out but instead of like Cold War paranoia or other kinds of paranoia, the paranoia is against the yuppies who are in charge, bleeding everyone dry. So it's quite a subversive film, a lot of fun, a lot of action. Um, and uh, considering it's quite a low budget, it, it's quite nicely played out. Very good action. Again, a, a modern day version of this would probably have a lot more explosive action and kind of noise and everything like we've talked about John Carpenter before. But this has got some brilliant, you know, very beautifully timed kind of sudden action. You know, his, his background as a horror director is put to good use when sudden, sudden action. Um, and uh, Roddy Piper is an <laughs> absolute badass. Um, I have to say, I like this film when I, 
but didn't love it when I first saw it. It's part of my John Carpenter collection. I hadn't seen it as much as I'd seen the other films if I hadn't seen it all. And I, I watched this one and went, I'm not sure if I like this as much as some other classic ones. But re-watching it, even though it has this kind of cheesy element, I think that's on purpose. And I really, really like it this time. It's got a really classic, clever style. Um, it's uh, It doesn't have a breakneck pace. It's got quite a deliberate pace, but that gives you a really good build-up to the story. And it's got another classic, open-ended John Carpenter uh, final scene where you know it, it it doesn't kind of tie up the storyline it leaves it open and i really love that so yeah th- this is one where you know a lot most of the john carpenter films i've watched as part of this collection i kind of like it as much as i liked it the last time if you see what i mean but this time i've really gone oh wow i've kind of reclaimed this one i really like this film it's a very very clever low budget sci-fi with some kick-ass action some brilliant shootouts uh, never loses its kind of you know clever satirical edge um and although it does have this kind of slightly over-the-top cartoonish feel, I think that's deliberate. I mean, it's a late 80s action film that comes out the same year as Predator and you know, and, and and Commando and all of these things. So it's it's very, very cleverly done. Very of its time, but a very, very clever film. Um, it also has this amazing sort of scene. And a key moment in the film is uh, Roddy Piper's trying to convince his co-star, Keith David, who's also in John Carpenter's The Thing, that he's not crazy, even though he's just been seen shooting a bunch of people. Because if you don't wear the glasses, he looks like he's just killed some people. Uh, and he's trying to convince his workmate that he's not crazy. Put on the glasses and you'll see what I mean. And the other guy's really angry with them and refuses. And it descends into an insane fistfight. It's one of the most epic fistfights ever put on film. And the two actors actually agreed that every punch above the belt buckle and below the throat will be real. And they only kind of fake like the low blows and, and the blows to the head. And it's an absolutely crazy, crazy fight scene, possibly the most epic fist fight ever put on film. And because of that, that inspired this month's impromptu top 10, which is the top 10 most epic fist fights. Um, now, having agreed to do that, I quickly found that coming up with just 10 fist fights in the whole of the film was a near impossible task, and there's bound to be tons of disagreement. including boxing films, or are you just talking about like street fights? There are some rules here. I'm not including boxing films. I'm not including superhero films. And I'm not including fights where it's actually mostly a sword fight or a gunfight where they also throw punches. So not Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, because that's mostly sword fighting. And not John Wick, because that's actually half the time they're shooting guns and half the time they're they're, they're punching each other. So um, there's going to be loads of disagreement, like I say. I reckon the socials might light up with kind of, you can't believe you said that and not this. And I'm sure you might throw in some favorites of yours that I've missed, James. but in no particular order, it, don't, don't push your foot around it. Into it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, 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 I'm undermining myself. Yeah. Um, so, in no particular order, my choice of the top ten most epic fist fights: uh, Old Boy, the Corridor Fight. Yes. The Raid. Yeah, uh, in, the, and that's the a film. Heat, yeah, a dead heat between the two fights uh, against Mad Dog. The Raid Two, a dead heat between the massive prison fight, the kitchen fight, and the car chase fight. And the train fight. Honestly, we could have had an impromptu top 20 fist fights, which was entirely made up of fight scenes from the Raid films. Um, but I'll just give them two. You know, um, The Bourne Ultimatum, Bourne versus Dash. Uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, the bathroom fight. Atomic Blonde, the stairwell fight. Enter the Dragon, uh, the Bruce Lee versus the Bear Claw, the final uh, climax in the Hall of Mirrors. The Matrix, Trinity's first fight at the start of the film. Uh, Fist of Legend, uh, Jet Li's final fight scene in that, which is uh, very impressive. And um, Police Story, Jackie Chan's shopping mall fight. I don't know if you've seen that. No. Is it good? Uh, The best Jackie Chan fight scene of all time. It's got absolutely everything, including a motorbike. (laughs) 
That is a phenomenal phenomenon. If I was going to pick one, I would pick that. You couldn't. You couldn't pick They Live though. Did you did you put They Live on this? No, no. It's like as with all these things, it's always the top ten apart from you know this the one, one. that inspired okay, okay, it. Okay, so okay, it's okay, the top okay, ten okay. apart from They Live. As we head towards the end of the year, we're getting to this. Uh, John Carpenter's best and most well-known films. And for sem- September, we've arrived at Big Trouble in Little China. Now, this is definitely one of John Carpenter's best and most beloved films and was a mainstay of my film watching in the 1980s. It's probably his most rewatchable film, although some people might argue for Halloween or you know, maybe one or two others. But I think it's just one of those films you can always put on any time and you have a great time and it cheers you up. It's sort of like the action film version of Galaxy Quest in that sense. It's yeah. just, you know... Whatever mood you're in, you're in the mood for Big Trouble in Little China, if you see what I mean. Um, for those of you who aren't too familiar with it, it the story starts with Kurt Russell's loudmouth truck driver, Jack Burton, arriving in San Francisco's Chinatown to deliver his consignment of livestock. But it's not his story, and that's what's really clever about this film. He meets up with his friend, a Chinese-American small business owner in, 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 in the city called Wang Chi. He gets caught up in Wang's story. Wang's fiance um, is arriving at the airport, um, but is kidnapped there by people trafficking gangsters. And he has to go up against these scary guys to get her back. These gangsters are part of a bigger, much more powerful organized crime gang, and their leader is Lo Pan, the all-powerful crime boss who's feared by everyone in Chinatown. But in the story, Lopan is actually a sorcerer who's thousands of years old and wields terrifying power with magical henchmen and a lair full of strange phenomenon. Wang has to set out to fight Lopan with whoever will, will help him, um, which includes Jack and some other friends in the, the Chinatown area, um, get his fiance back and prevent Lopan from gaining so much power. He threatens the world as we know it. So you start with, you think you're going to have this story about this kind of bouncy kind of uh, Kurt Russell character. It quickly turns into actually the story of these uh, this long-standing dispute among Chinese people in Chinatown that Jack just gets caught up in, and he's um, and then it turns into a, this massive supernatural story. It's an absolute bundle of fun. Basically, what it was is that John Carpenter um, he brought a lot to it because he was a big fan of these Chinese fantasy martial arts films where you know people fight on wires and people aren't just good at fighting; they have magical powers. Um, it started out as a period Western in the original script. It was actually going to be set in the, the old West, um, but they thought it, it they, they ended up doing it in the present day instead and, and added a lot of kind of sorcery and stuff. But it's brilliant fun. Great special effects, martial arts fighting on wires for, for possibly the first time in, in a Hollywood film. City blocks going up in green flames, lots of snappy dialogue. Kurt Russell's great fun as Jack. Dennis Dunn, who hasn't done that many films, but he's really good as, as, as essentially the hero Wang. Lots of good supporting characters like Kim Cattrall as a wisecracking lawyer. Victor Wong is the older Chinatown resident who helps the good guys out. And James Hong plays Lo Pan. And James Hong is amazing. Those of you who don't know James Hong, you'll have seen him in millions and millions of roles over the years. He's the uh, the grumpy um, uh, Chinese restaurant owner in uh, Big Bang Theory. He plays um, Jack Black's dad in Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> He's got a brilliant voice. He's absolutely amazing in this. Um Sadly, this film didn't do very well at the box office at the time because the studio executives, yes, them again, didn't really understand what to do with the film. I mean, it got a big budget and the film turned out exactly the way you would want it to. And then they sort of scratched their heads and went, oh, is this like Indiana Jones? What what is this? Is this an action film? They just didn't know what to do with it. So they just fucking dropped it, didn't didn't promote it. So it kind of sneaked out in a crowded summer, didn't get watched. And then when it got out on home video, people like me, who was the perfect age for it, we all went, oh, this is great. Let's watch this. And all they had to do to promote the film is tell people it was fucking coming out because it's bloody brilliant. Um, it's, you know, it's 
it's very, very clever and, and turns things on its head. And that Kurt Kurt Russell is he's the man who thinks he's the hero, but he's actually the the sort of the funny sidekick. Um, but it's all in great spirit. He's 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 portrayed as brave and loyal, but it's not actually his film. Um, it's weird because it had accusations of racism when it was being made because I think there'd been a couple of films that were like Year of the Dragon before that that had been really quite racist in their depiction of Chinatown. And then when someone said, oh, you can have an action film that portrays Chinatown as full of monsters and kind of evil sorcerers, what the fuck are you up to? So the people who made the film invited some activist groups and Chinatown residents to see the script and what they were doing. And they went, oh, actually, that's quite good. You crack on. Um, So it should have been a hit. It should have been great. Um, but it, um, again, it was let down by the studio, but it's been hugely influential since then. It's, um, uh, it's basically set the template for the action comedy as we know it. Any action comedy with fantasy elements that's come out in the last 30 years owes a huge debt to this film. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll come to that. Um, fun facts. I said it was originally going to be a period Western featuring Chinese characters. Um, Jackie Chan was actually going to play the lead role of Wang, but uh, he turned it down. But yeah. he later did Shanghai Noon, which is a period Western featuring Chinese characters. So he he got caught up in it anyway. The you know he he, he finally Except was he was, was a given a role. It's a shitter film because it's own. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I love Jackie Chan, so I'd kind of loved him to be in this film. But I think it works because Jackie Chan's his English is okay, but Dennis Dunn, who plays Wang, is a Chinese American. He's American. It, he fits the character better that way. Yeah, it's you know the the. The stuntman on on wires is now much more of a mainstay in films, and um, it's probably the first time a Hollywood film incorporated these elements from Asian Asian cinema. So, it's it's a minor milestone and it's just a terrific film in its own right. Um, as always, um, I always tell you that if you want to get into this film or any other John Carpenter film in more detail, uh, I recommend you listen to the excellent podcast Masters of Carpentry, which breaks down each film in its own full episode. Now, this film more or less invented the modern Hollywood action comedy, and all sorts of films have been influenced by it. So I'm going to do my regular impromptu top 10 in honor of this uh, with the top 10 films uh, influenced by Big Trouble in Little China. There's actually thousands of films been influenced by it, but these are 10 that I'd like to pick out. Uh, In no particular order, Thor Ragnarok. Uh, Taika Waititi came right out and said that he was heavily influenced by this. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles um, has a character based on uh, one of one of the characters in this film. Uh, From Dust Till Dawn, uh, The Matrix, because that kind of wire fighting and and you know hidden worlds uh, couldn't exist without uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, Scream, with its kind of knowing nods to to the way films work. Uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, uh, The Mummy, the nineteen ninety nine version. Shanghai Noon, even though it's not very good. Uh, Kick Ass. Uh, and uh, Mortal Kombat, although that is more the video game uh, than the film. Um, I haven't put Death Proof in this because I don't like Death Proof, but that's also hugely influenced by um, this film. Uh, Jack Burton's T-shirt from this film is hanging on the wall in the bar scene, and Kurt Russell's stuntman character has shades of that character in the way he speaks. Uh, so that's like a almost honourable mention. But that's my impromptu top ten. That's the Year of the Carpenter entry, and that's our roundup. Uh, for this month was part of my ongoing project to make 2021 the year of the carpenter um, and the film I watched this month is Assault on Precinct 13 because I'm watching these films in ascending order of how highly rated they are uh, on IMDB we're now in October this is the you know the third highest rated of all of John Carpenter's films um, 
was made in 1976. Uh, it was a, an unofficial remake or inspired by the, the, the basic storyline of an old Howard Hawks Western called Rio Bravo. Um, you know, it's an interesting look at what you can do with a remake, which is why we're looking at the remake of this film uh, for our Hate Watch this month. Um, it's interesting because John Carpenter was a big Western fan, but he didn't have the money to make a Western because you've got to have period settings and costumes and everything. That costs money. He only had $100,000, so he decided to take a lot of his Western ideas and his love of Howard Hawks films and transplant it into an urban thriller. It's essentially a siege film where... Um, there's a, a an, an escalating conflict between the police and LA gangs, which has resulted in one LA gang decided they've had enough and they're going to attack a police precinct. And but but first they go on a, a bit of a, a killing rampage. They've just decided, you know, they're sick of being you know just executed in the street by the police, so they're going to go, kind of get, come back. But they're you know they're violent. They're, there's no suggestion that this gang is justified. They're just a, it's just an escalating conflict, and this gang are really violent, and they kill the child which is a pretty shocking kind of start to the film. Uh, and the the father of that child just loses his mind, gets a gun from, from somewhere and shoots the leader of the gang and then takes refuge in a, pre, a police precinct that's about to close down. They're about to move the whole precinct to a, to a new one. So there's only three people or so in the, in the precinct and the gang descend on this to kill the guy who killed their, their compadre. Um, <clears throat> and at the same time, a busload of convicts is kind of dumped there or a few convicts are dumped there because one of them's ill and they get in the cell. So you've got this mixture of off-duty, you know, policemen who suddenly have to get involved in a fight. You know, the secretaries who work in the police station and a couple of um, a couple of convicts who they're not sure they can trust have got to fight a, a mass gang of, uh, of 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 criminals who've decided to just wipe everyone out as some sort of statement against the police. And it's a siege drama, and it's got kind of Western kind of the characters have got almost like Western. Um, style to them, which Americans weren't that keen on because they'd seen a lot of westerns at the time, but Europe loved it. Europe went, oh, great, an, an urban drama siege film, but with western touches. I love that. And it was uh, it was the start of John Carpenter's career. Um, as uh, as as well as that, it's, um, it's definitely influenced by Night of the Living Dead, which is a film that uh, John Carpenter loved. Another sort of fun fact for you for you nerds out there, the uh, the character Romero in Escape from New York is inspired by George Romero, who directed Night of the Living Dead. There's a few little touches like that in, in Carpenter's films. So this is where John Carpenter really got started. This is his professional debut after Dark Star. And it's an absolutely amazing piece of work. It's one of the first films that has one of his classic theme tunes in it uh, that really builds atmosphere. Um, there's just this relentless pace to the, you know, the 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 people attacking the um, uh the, the precinct there's some beautiful touches like they're using silences so no one out no one outside can hear the shots so they're really stuck in on their own and actually inside the precinct these high-powered rifles with silences that these gang members have managed to get hold of they're not making any sound so instead of hearing a gunshot you just hear glass breaking and then things getting blown up and shot up on the counter of the uh, uh, of the um, uh, of the precinct which is really atmospheric and you've got this great relationship between the, the one of the women who works in the police station who's really, she's like a, a very classic Howard Hawks-style heroine that John Carpenter liked the idea of. You've got the um, the, the tough cop, or but, but decent cop, who's fighting back. Uh, and relatively unusually for 1976, the hero of the film is black. And the convict, who is a very stylish kind of enigmatic character, is white. And this kind of rapport builds up between those three characters as they essentially fight for survival. Um, it's a really tremendous piece of work. It's an absolute action and suspense classic. Um, I'm just glad I revisited because I love this movie. Um, 
So I would definitely um, recommend anyone else watch the same film. It's quite interesting to compare. If you watch the original Rio Bravo, it's a John Wayne Western, right? It doesn't look like John Carpenter's version of the story. It doesn't, you know, have quite the same characters. And it's basically that it's a siege film. There's lots of siege films, and siege films like heist films very rarely need to be remade because you can just borrow influences from all sorts of similar films, but do your own interesting thing with it. Exactly as one of the uh, one of the uh, audience members who wrote in uh, exactly pointed out, there's a French film called The Nest which did that very thing. They loved Assault on Precinct 13, but they did their own fresh thing with this idea rather than a remake. They don't tell you a lot about the characters. Now, I'm not saying that no film should give you the background to the characters, but that film works because they trap you in that situation, and it's all about how they act in that situation. Everything you know about the cop, the criminal, the woman who works at the police station, the gangsters outside, um, the other people caught up in the situation, all you know about them is how they operate in that situation there's a lovely bit of characterization at, at the start of the film where the um napoleon wilson is the uh uh is the is the criminal who is fighting alongside the police to kind of get away from these gangs in the john carpenter version and he's a very stylish character he's full of wisecracking one-liners the the woman in the in in the film finds him attractive because he's he's got a bit of panache about him but he's he's he's, he's you know he's being you know he's on trial for murder he's going to death row so there's a <laughs> There's nothing can happen between them, but he's a fascinating character, um, all based on what you see of him. You don't see his background. And his, his, his recurring line is, has anyone got a smoke? Because he hasn't got any cigarettes on him. And all of the other cops tell him to fuck off when he asks for a cigarette. And our cop, the black guy, the hero of the, you know, Austin Stoker, the the, the main guy in the uh, in, in, in this story, he's decent to him, even though he doesn't have a cigarette. He says, no, sorry, I don't have a cigarette. I'll let you know if I, you know, I'll let you know if I see one, right? And that that criminal, because that cop was decent to him, he kind of says, "Well, if I need to, if I need to stand next to that guy and fight, I will, because of the way that guy treated me." And that everything I've just told you takes ten seconds, because John Carpenter is very good at telling his story concisely, and everything you need to know about those characters is based on what you see on screen. Couple of fun facts: you've got um, uh, the the little girl in this who gets killed is called Kim Richards. Her younger sister, Kyle Richards, played one of the children being babysat in John Carpenter's next film, Halloween. Um, so it was a bit of a family affair at that time. Um, and this is a classic example of John Carpenter using his influences to make a really interesting new film. And he was very good at that, putting a new spin on films he was influenced by. In honour of this being John Carpenter's debut and where he shut off all his influences and really made a splash, um, I've decided to make our impromptu top ten John Carpenter's um, favourite films that influenced um, his his filmmaking. Um, this is a list made up of an explicit list of five films he said were his favourites, but other films which you know, if you know John Carpenter, you know a big, uh, big you know, big influences on him. So this impromptu top ten to just kind of show you where John Carpenter's coming from: uh, Citizen Kane, Rio Bravo, Vertigo, Blow Up, Only Angels Have Wings, uh, The Thing from Another World. The Quatermass Experiment, Night of the Living Dead, The Wild Bunch, and Forbidden Planet. So, if you like John Carpenter and you want to know where his his style came from, that would be that list of ten films would be a great place to start. Um, so that's the that's the year of the Carpenter entry for this month. Uh, next month it's Halloween, which I think everyone uh, listening will know all about. But I'm going to be doing that uh, next month, uh, and that's the roundup for this month. The other film I watched, uh, or the other resolution I have. Uh, is to make 2021 the year of the carpenter. 
for for this month, we are down to you know pretty much the last two um, John Carpenter films. We are on Halloween, the the film that really made John Carpenter's name. Uh, it's his 1978 film that he made, which kicked off a, a new horror, horror subgenre, really, the slasher film, uh, sent John Carpenter's career really into the stratosphere. Um, slasher movies had kind of been made before. Obviously, Psycho is really the birth of the slasher movie in that way. And there have been some Italian Jallo films and a film called um, Black Christmas um, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, sort of. Um, but this really brought it together and combined that, that idea of the slasher movie, the ordinary teen sort of cast members so it combines teen horror with a slasher movie um and i think the reason it became so popular is the idea of this relentless deranged killer especially at the time when real life serial killers were out there um but the people on screen were like ordinary teenagers and the target audience of the film could see themselves up on screen in in that jeopardy um and this is where it all began um for those of you who aren't aware the story of halloween it's actually quite familiar michael myers as a child commits a horrible crime in small town america he's locked up for many years in a mental institution when he reaches adulthood he escapes goes back to his hometown and uh terrorizes teenagers as they babysit and hang out on halloween night and that's it um it's interesting that there'd never been a horror film take place on halloween before um so that was quite novel at the time uh this was a huge smash hit. It cost $100,000 to make, which was a small amount of money even then. It made $70 million, so it was an absolute smash hit. I think it made 700 times its budget at the box office. Yeah. Um, that is why there's been so many horror movies and slasher movies since then, because it, they're so profitable. Um, even now, you've got films that come out which get a really shitty review, like The Nun and all of these kind of conjuring kind of sequels. Um um, but they, they only cost like three or four million dollars to make and they easily make 30, 40 million um, at the box office. It's, and that's why people make these movies because they're, they're profitable. There's a, there's a good audience for it out there. This is where it all started. What's interesting about that film is that unlike most of the slasher films that came after it, it's got real talent and craftsmanship in the making of the film because it's John Carpenter. He actually spent half the budget of the movie on the cameras. I don't know if you know that, mate. No, I didn't. Um, basically, he wanted to film it in Panavision, like the big widescreen cameras that they used to make westerns, because he wanted to, he wanted to just have the full kind of widescreen frame, so that a lot of a lot of horror movie photography is about making uh, the, the the character who's about to get you know chased or killed or whatever look very isolated. A lot of horror movie shots are really like disorienting from a certain angle or making them look like you know view them through a window, and the use of that frame is just just amazing and there's some really famous shots where because of the widescreen frame uh michael myers appears in shadow behind the main character and it freaks everybody out so it's just it's just brilliant i mean if you want to see it's, it's hard to see what the effect of this film would be now because it is quite tame compared to modern horror films and everyone's kind of seen it but if you want to see the effect of this film there is a video on youtube which is a uh, it's a recording. I think it was done by the by the film people back then because you couldn't just take a camcorder into a movie back then without getting into trouble. And it shows the audience reaction to some key scenes in the Halloween movie and people screaming and losing their minds at the key scenes. Um, and that you, you watch that, you see the real kind of impact of this movie because since then, these films have got a lot more gory, a lot more nudity. You know, no one would spend the first half of the film just setting it up and building the atmosphere and having these people being watched and stalked before anything sort of any violence breaks out but that's exactly what John Carpenter does and he just builds this beautiful gripping atmosphere um and that's before you even mention the music because he just uh like he did back then to save money he did the music himself and also he's a very talented composer uh he I think he he wrote and composed and recorded the music in like five days all the music cues that he needed 
and it just makes you know it makes the movie because you just it, it's like another character in the film so interestingly it's it was the start of this genre of film but it was also the peak of it everything was downhill after this friday the 13th the freddy krueger films all of these none of them have ever been as good as this because you know, John Carter is a proper director who was making a horror film, and a lot of these other films were, like, just jumping on the bandwagon. There's only maybe the Scream films, which, like, direct films with the same quality and, and cast as this, um, but they were kind of a bit self-referential, almost a spoof of the slasher movie anyway. So, really, Halloween is this kind of unique movie on its own. It's a cliche now because it's been copied so much, but it's it's just a really classy film, which is an odd thing to say about a slasher movie. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it, you, you can forgive all of this stuff that it, you know it was filmed in California. It doesn't look like Illinois in autumn. They had to put they had to paint leaves red and put them on the ground to make it look like it's autumn. And you actually, if you look, the trees are all green and the leaves are all green, so it's clearly not autumn in, in Illinois. But you don't care because you're watching the film. It's so well done. Um, so look, there's there's nothing else really to say about Halloween. It's a classic film. It doesn't have the same impact. I mean, I remember I remember showing this to to your sister. Um, you know, when she was just you know. Uh, she's become a big horror movie fan and it's like, well, I'll show you some of the classics. And she loved it. And she loves the the, the reboot of the franchise because now she's got her, now she's got films in this, you know, in this in this genre for her generation. Um, she watched this and said it was really good. It was really creepy. Not not as scary as like some horror films compared to now because um, it, it just can't be. If, if John Carpenter had made a film as violent and explicit as the films that came after it, uh, it wouldn't have had the same. People would have just said, "Who the fuck are you?" I mean, it happened to Wes Craven. He did a horror movie that was really seemed quite extreme at the time, but just seems quite normal now. Um, so, what John Carpenter did, there's not. It's not that gory. It's not that explicit. It's just beautifully, beautifully done. I mean, it is. It, it, it's it's as close to a Hitchcock um, slasher film as as as, as John Carpenter as, as John Carpenter would ever get. It's a real, really, really, really classy film. Um, now. What I always do in relation to something that we watch, and it's usually the John Carpenter film, I, I do an impromptu top 10, um, and I'm going to do that um, for this. Uh, there's a little Easter egg in Halloween where the kids are all watching horror movies while they're being babysat by Jamie Lee Curtis, and the film they're watching is the original version of The Thing, which everyone knows John Carpenter went on to remake. So there's a little, there was a little Easter egg in there. And also, it's um, I thought it would be interesting to do a, a top 10 of um, films that show people watching films and, and how that might be... Uh, relevant uh, to what's going on in this story. So here's my impromptu top 10 people watching films in films. Um, so 12 Monkeys, where they're watching Vertigo and the Birds, which is a very interesting counterpoint to what's going on in the story. Uh, Blazing Saddles, where the two main characters go into a cinema and watch their own film to see how it ends. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, where watching Rita Hayworth films has a major bearing on the story. Um, Hot Fuzz, where they watch a, a double bill of Point Break and Bad Boys 2. Uh, Zombieland, where they watch Ghostbusters at Bill Murray's house. An, Ameri an American werewolf in London, watching the film in the porno cinema with the ghosts of the werewolf's victims. Scream 2, where the killer murders someone at a screening of the film based on the events of Scream 1. Inglorious Bastards, couldn't leave Tarantino off this list. Here a climactic scene takes place in a crowded cinema. True Romance, Tarantino again, where the young lovers meet at a screening of a Sonny Chiba uh, double bill. Uh, and finally, Cinema Paradiso, where everybody watches all the films with the uh, kissing taken out. And then at the end, there's a montage of all the kisses, which is probably the most beautiful tribute to cinema. Um, so I'll, I'll top it off with that. So that's the impromptu top 10. That is the Year of the Carpenter entry for this month. And that's our roundup.
Um, and the other, the other resolution was to make 2021 the year of the carpenter. And now in December, we come to the 12th and final film in, in this little series that I've done. Um, what I've been doing is uh, watching uh, sort of my 12 favourite um, John Carpenter films in ascending order of their IMDb rating. Um, this takes us now to my favourite and John Carpenter's best and the highest rated uh, John Carpenter film on IMDb, which is The Thing. Um, now, I actually had the opportunity on Halloween night to go into uh, to London to the, uh, the the Prince Charles Repertory Cinema in Leicester Square and see this. Um, so I went to see it in the big screen with a with an audience, uh, which is as frankly it's on one of my, my bucket list uh, things is to see the thing on the big screen. And it was oh, I'm so happy about it. You know, it's um, the, the excitement of, of actually seeing this because I, I mean I, I would have I would have enjoyed it thoroughly if I'd stuck the video on because I've got that on the shelf at home. But to actually go and see it in the cinema with a, with a, a really packed crowd, everyone you know full of anticipation um, and. Uh, on the big screen, that is a serious, intense cinematic experience. In case there's anyone um, uh, listening who's not aware, The Thing was a, a remake of a 1951 film called The Thing from Another World. It's about uh, a team of researchers uh, at a scientific outpost in Antarctica who uncover or who come into contact with uh, a creature which can disguise itself as an, as anything and anyone and is, is essentially hiding in the body of someone on the station. It starts out hiding in one of the dogs, and then it's hiding in one of the people, and no one knows who, so they stop trusting each other. People start getting killed gruesomely with no idea what's going on. Uh, the tension and paranoia cranks up to the point that they have to carry out tests on each other to see who the, the, the real killer is. The whole thing goes absolutely, you know, full on. And it's just an absolute masterpiece of tension and horror. The gore effects are incredible. Um... Watching it with an audience was really interesting because you got all the big shocks, right? Everyone's like kind of, you know, you can see people's spines stiffen as the scares happen on screen. But it goes to show how well the film works that it got some really big laughs as well because there were a couple of tension-breaking moments or a couple of bits where, like, everyone's been tied up on the sofa because they don't know who the thing is and it just has this moment where you look at these people all tied up next to each other on the sofa and the whole audience cracks up. And I think they needed to because the tension had been built up so much. It's like an, an opportunity to laugh was almost like gratefully like pounced on by this audience. And it's such a brilliant, brilliant film. And we've talked about it before that it actually had a, an unfortunate effect on John Carpenter's career because despite being a brilliant film, his best film, possibly the best horror film of all time, it didn't do very well at the box office and was mauled by the critics when it came out and got him sacked from the next film that he was going to make instead of what should have happened, people saying, fucking hell, John Carpenter, I didn't know you had it in you. Please go and make any film you want to make. Um, so it really is in a, in a parallel universe somewhere, John Carpenter goes on and becomes the absolute kind of megastar of directing that he deserved to be on the back of the thing. But unfortunately, in our reality, this film didn't do that well. But it stands today as an absolute horror masterpiece. And uh, if you are based anywhere around London and you can get to the Prince Charles Cinema, they do periodically show... John Carpenter films. They they sometimes show Big Trouble in Little China over there as well. Next Halloween, they'll probably have more horror films there. And if they can ever do the thing again, I cannot recommend you highly enough um, to um, uh, go and see it. Um, it is a, an absolute belter of a film. Um, now, what I've been doing each uh, each month with these uh, Year of the Carpenters, I'm also giving you an impromptu top 10 of films that are linked to it in some way. Um, 
Obviously, because the thing is based entirely in a snowbound outpost in Antarctica, I thought I'd give you an impromptu top 10 of snowbound films. So other than the thing, uh, uh, my top 10 of films where for all of a significant part of the story, the characters are forced to operate in snowy conditions or are otherwise limited, restricted or trapped by snow. And this is my top 10 in no particular order. Uh, Misery, Snowpiercer, uh, The Hateful Eight, The Shining, A Simple Plan, Fargo, The Revenant, Groundhog Day, Dr. Zhivago, and Planes, Trains and Automobiles. Uh, again, quite an eclectic list uh, linked uh, by you know one characteristic, but I hopefully you'll enjoy uh, 10 films that are inspired um, by going to see the absolute classic John Carpenter's The Thing. So... This is the uh, the end of uh, the year of the carpenter. I'm really I'm really pleased that I did this. Um, it's you know got me back in touch with some cracking films. It's been a really enjoyable little project within the podcast. And one of my news resolutions for next uh, next year is going to be to do something similar, a little kind of you know twelve film or twelve month project of films. Um, so that's that's year of the carpenter. That's our roundup. Uh, next next month, or in fact next year, we'll have some new New Year's resolutions for you, and hopefully it'll help us give a an interesting take on our film watching uh, for you, the audience, to enjoy. I do find, I just want to say, I do find it weird that Escape from New York isn't higher up on the Year of the Carpenter. This is the thing I was, you know, stuck in the rules of like how it's uh, it's um, rated on IMDb and it's like it's sixth, sixth best. And um, it's interesting. Some people have been a little bit kind of taken aback, I think, by its very nihilistic tone. Because a lot of John Carpenter films are kind of more upbeat than that and yeah. uh, it's a really dystopian film it's really quite bleak and Kurt Russell's character is essentially saying fuck it the world doesn't deserve to be saved and I don't think everybody gets on with that but I mean I think it's brilliant I was quite when I started doing the list I went really sixth is that all but yeah that's where it ended up hmm. it's mad that that's finished yeah, I don't suppose you thought you'd actually ever get to the end of it uh, well you know it was yeah, it was just it's it was an enjoyable way to kind of look at films. It's almost like you set yourself a little challenge. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoyed it, and it's um, yeah, I have to see what I do uh, next month, um, next year. Sorry, that uh, that matches up to it. That's all for this special episode of Double Reel, the Year of the Carpenter. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe, leave a review and tell your friends. For more John Carpenter content, check out the Masters of Carpentry podcast and listen to his albums of original music, Lost Themes. The music for the podcast was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Look out for other special episodes we will do in the future and look out for our other podcast, The Adamson's Verses. Otherwise, our next edition of Double Reel will be your regular episode 21. Until then, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is in social media.